Well, thank you for the invite. Um, it's really lovely to be with you this morning in person um, after a really long time away. Um, and who could have imagined 18 months ago that today I'd be coming to you uh, in the middle of a pandemic, in the midst of a fuel crisis, and after the sort of semi-apocalyptic rain yesterday, I'm just left wondering... Is it boils next or frogs? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, I think we've all seen in the last 10 days or so the impact of the things that we say. Um, when there's no fuel crisis, don't panic buy becomes fuel crisis. Panic buy. And now it's not panic buying. It's just buying um, if we can. Um, and there's a weight to things that we say. Um, things that we say, though, can be genuinely incorrect. And I've got an example I hope that we're going to play in a second, a little film. Um, that is one of my favourite examples uh, from a shopping channel. Uh, it's a man who's trying to sell a digital camera. You might remember digital cameras. Um, they were like phones, but without WhatsApp uh, and sat-navs. That's what we called a camera. Um, and this man has been demonstrating this camera and is trying to show what a good camera is because of the photo that's been printed out. You might remember printing out photos. Um, it was what we used to do before you had a phone. Uh, and he's trying to show how high quality this picture is that you can remember printing print out this picture so hopefully we'll be able to see this film clip. I'll click print and we'll print it out. Now while we're doing that, let me show you something really impressive. That picture, remember the picture of the horse I showed you earlier? Well here it is, blown up. This is a big horse. Order now, you get the camera, you get the printer, 4X optical zoom, Schneider lens, Photo printer, SD card. Look at that horse. The bushy tail, the big teeth, the hooves. Okay, my producer Tara Cates just told me this isn't a horse, it's a butterfly. Yeah, actually, it may in fact be a moth. But look at what the zoom did. I mean, you can see details in the antenna. Let's watch it again because it makes me laugh so much. Um, look at that horse. Look at that horse. Go on, let's have it again, please. Please. And we'll print it out. Now, while we're doing that, let me show you something really impressive. That picture, remember the picture of the horse I showed you earlier? Well, here it is, blown up. This is a big horse. Order now. You get the camera, you get the printer. 4X optical zoom. Schneider lens. Photo printer, SD card, look at that horse. The bushy tail, the big teeth, the hooves. Okay, my producer Tara Cates just told me this isn't a horse, it's a butterfly. Yeah, actually, it may in fact be a moth. But look at what the zoom did. I mean, you can see details in the antenna. It's the best laugh you'll have all day. Um, just go and look it up and watch it all the time on YouTube if you have a bad day. Um, it's his commitment to the detail in that picture of the horse. Look at the bushy tail. And it might not be um, a, a horse, it's a butterfly. My producer, Dara Cates, just told me. Um, it may, in fact, be a moth. So the whole time he's showing you a picture of a moth and he's convinced that it's a picture of a horse. There is relevance shoehorned in somewhere down the line. But anyway... Um, it's just such a great thing. He's so convinced that he's showing you a horse. We can see the evidence that it's a moth. Um, and even when he's corrected, it's not quite what he thought he was. 
So we've got a passage this morning um, where Jesus is not exactly who we think he might be, because he's got a tendency to do that, Jesus has. He can be completely understandable and utterly confusing all at the same time. Um, And we're going to look at one of those passages this morning, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 16 and reading from verse 13. Uh, I'm going to be reading it from Tom's Wright's translation of the New Testament. Um, So Matthew chapter 16 from from verse 13 down to verse 20. Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi. There he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say the Son of Man is? John the Baptist, they replied. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, he said, you're the son of the living God. God's blessing on you, Simon, son of John, answered Jesus. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was my father in heaven. And I've got something to tell you too. You are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you tie up on earth will have been tied up in heaven, and whatever you untie on earth will have been untied in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So Jesus, in this passage, uses one of his favourite tactics, which is asking questions. He's full of questions, is Jesus, and his teacher often asks his audience questions. Sometimes, in response to a question, he will ask another question. And here he is with his disciples, and his conversation starter this time uh, is, who do people say the Son of Man is? And that phrase, son of man, might seem a bit confusing to start with, um, but if you've read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, then you might have come across that phrase before. And it's one of Jesus' favourite ways of talking about himself. It's used a bit in the Old Testament, um, especially with two of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. And sometimes when it's used, it just means like an ordinary bloke, the average guy, um, an individual human being. But in the book of Daniel, it's given a new layer of meaning, this phrase, son of man. Um, It's someone who Daniel sees in a vision, someone who comes with clouds and approaches God. So a bit more than just an ordinary man. So Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that he is? And they answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So people who've seen Jesus starting to get the idea that, some, that Jesus is a prophet. So a prophet, someone who tells out the words of God, a message, a person with a message for people. But Jesus carries on with the questioning, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps in with some more titles. You are Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples have never been taught to call Jesus Christ. They must have picked it up from somewhere. But what does this word mean? And why did Jesus then at the end tell the disciples not to tell anyone? Sometimes when you ask a question, that reply needs a bit more of a clarification. Sometimes jobs need a bit more of a clarification. So if you meet someone that's a teacher, then you might instantly say, oh, what subject do you teach? Or if someone says they're ambassador, you might say... Do you have a reception with Ferrero Rocher? No, you might say, um, where are you an ambassador for? Where, what, for which country? And it's the same with that title that 
Peter gives Jesus. So Peter calls Jesus Messiah or Christ. Um, And we sort of forget that Jesus Christ isn't his surname, that it's not Joseph and Mary and Jesus Christ, their son. Um, But Christ means Messiah, which means anointed one. And anointed is not necessarily a word that we use very often. I don't know, I imagine Nigella might anoint a chicken somehow with oil, mightn't she? But I can't think of many times that I have actually used the word anointed outside of church. And the word anointed sort of means, needs another bit. Even when I talked about Nigella and the chicken, I had to say, Nigella anointed it with oil. Like, you have to have a bit more to it than just anointed. Anointed for what purpose? Anointed to do what? So if you are anointed, um, it means that you've been chosen to do a particular job. I guess for that chicken, it's to be my lunch. Um, But Jesus was anointed in a different way. And what job then was Jesus anointed for? Again, in the Old Testament, you'll find all sorts of different people are anointed. Sometimes kings are anointed. They're appointed by God to do a particular task. Um, Maybe it was a prophet who is said to be anointed, and they've got to go out and tell God's words to some people. It might be actually workmen in the Old Testament are sometimes said to be anointed. They're chosen to do particular jobs. Sometimes even foreign kings in the Old Testament are said to be anointed. So prophets are people that go out and tell God's words and people that are anointed are more than just a prophet. They're not just there to tell people about God, they're supposed to do something as well. So someone that is anointed kind of brings together the words from God and then action combined. And at this point, uh, when Jesus was around, there was an expectation for a new Messiah, a new anointed one. And people didn't really know how that important person was going to appear. Um, In fact, there have been several people already who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be this anointed one, this special person. Some people thought that this new anointed one was going to rise up like a warrior, like the heroes of the Old Testament. Some people thought that that new anointed person, this new Messiah, was going to come in and change the way of the temple and start new ways of true worship. Everybody thought that the the prophecies in the Old Testament would be fulfilled in this new person, this new Messiah that was coming. I didn't really think it was going to be someone that was divine, um, that they were going to be God. Um, They really didn't know how it was going to pan out in practice. But people knew what they thought the Messiah should be doing. The Jews had gone through some really tough times up to this point in history. And that throughout that whole time, there was this growing feeling, this growing expectation that the last hope for them was going to be this person coming, this promised Messiah, this promised anointed one. And they expected this prophet to come and not tell them where the people were going wrong because people knew what was going wrong. It was the Romans. The Romans were the cause of all their problems. The Romans in the land, taxing them, increasing poverty, making them worship their ruler as if they were God. And they wanted a Messiah who was going to come and lead a mutiny. They they wanted someone to come and kick out the Romans, lead a whole new movement to release the people from their oppressive rulers and bring in this new era that they wanted of peace and justice. That's what the Messiah should be doing. That was what they wanted. And the people around Jesus, according to the disciples, have grasped a little bit of who Jesus is. That's clear in, in verse 14. 
The people see Jesus as some kind of wild prophet. But when Peter answers Jesus' question, he goes further. Jesus wasn't just going to speak out God's words. He was going to do something about them. And that was dangerous. There'd been people that had claimed to be the Messiah before, and they'd tried to overthrow the Romans and they'd ended up dead. Peter was signing up to challenge the authorities, but also potentially to overthrow them. And if this information had got out at the wrong moment, then the lives of Jesus and the disciples would be on the line. And we know with the benefit of history that Jesus was going to give up his life, but not yet, not at this point. The disciples were expecting Jesus to do something huge and dramatic. So people have been waiting for this political and military hero to come and to come and bring them freedom. And sometimes I think we look at that and we think, well, how narrow-minded? Why did they just think that Jesus was going to come and overthrow the Romans? Because our view of what Jesus is and what he does becomes kind of with this layer of spirituality. But in New Testament times, people would have thought of us as the weird ones. They believed in a God who was full of power, who could defeat a whole city with just a few trumpets and some marching, a God who could bring down armies. Their God was full of power and might. And here you are telling me that this one person is just going to die, going to suffer and be killed. It's kind of unthinkable to Peter. And just a few verses on, you'll see how badly he gets things wrong. Because Jesus has this habit of not being quite who or what you think he is. Just when you think you've got Jesus sussed, he does something else that is surprising. He throws a curveball in there. You think he's one thing and he turns out to be something else sometimes. He's complex. He's hard to get to know. I guess that is the joy of our faith being a relationship that grows and builds. So the people are expecting this powerful hero to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus says he's going to come and die. It's so utterly confusing. So what might this story mean for us? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm not talking here to you as an individual, but to you as a church. Who do you as a church say that Jesus is? Where might you've got it a little bit wrong. I'm not saying that you have got it wrong, but I think it's really important for us all to engage our brains in church and not just to listen to what our speakers or youth leaders or the the elders say, because your favourite speaker can be wrong. Your youth leaders can be wrong. The disciples have been with Jesus for years and they still miss the point regularly. Sometimes what we think about Jesus and God isn't accurate. Sometimes there might be things that we hear at church that might not be right. And sometimes it's not just the words that are said, but the impression that we're left with of God. And when we're in church, we need to, and and listening to your favourite podcast or whatever it is, we need to work out if what we're being told is a true image of God, which means that we need to get to know him personally so that we can weigh up what we're being told with the Jesus that we read about and, and see in the pages of the Bible. Does the picture that you're being presented with match up with the picture that you see in the Bible? Are you being told it's a horse when it's a butterfly? It may, in fact, 
be a moth. So who do you as church say that Jesus is? And more importantly, who are you as a church telling? How are you living out what you believe in your communities as a church? So the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for someone to save them for the Romans. That was their big issue. That was their big question. And Jesus, of course, responds to that question with a question. But he talks in this passage about building his church, building his community. The community that knows who he is and uses that knowledge to build a better world. And what are the big questions for our world, for our culture, for the culture that this church is in? What questions are people asking? Have we, the church, been listening hard enough? Have we, the church, been asking enough questions? Who we say Jesus is should be something that unites us, that brings us together, that builds our family bonds stronger and tighter. As we learn who more of Jesus is, we discover more of his love and forgiveness in our own lives. And that means that we learn to love and forgive each other as well. So there are lessons for us as a church to learn when we ask who Jesus is. But then who do you say that Jesus is? If you spend any time in church or at Sunday school or in youth groups, you'll know that if anyone ever asks a question, the answer is always Jesus. That's the right answer. But Peter's answer isn't something that Jesus had told them to say. He wasn't just repeating back the words that Jesus had taught them. Verse 17 makes it really clear that this is something that had been revealed to Peter by God. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? If you're totally honest with yourself, who do you think Jesus is? What is he to you? What would you like him to be to you? Jesus might not be who you think he is. His words can be clear and exciting or challenging and difficult. He is simple and the most complicated person you could imagine. He turns the world upside down and he makes it make sense all at the same time. But when it gets to you personally... Who do you say Jesus is? And that means you've actually got to put a bit of work in. You need to find out who God is and find out who Jesus is for yourself. You can't just rely on what other people tell you. You have to get to know him. So who do you say that Jesus is and what are you basing that on? What have you experienced for yourself? For you, is Jesus the son of the living God Is he just a nice person from history or is he alive? So there was something right at the beginning of that story that I skipped over and that was the location. So we're told that the the disciples are in a place called Caesarea Philippi and this was a town at the very north of of Palestine. It was a couple of days walk um, from the Sea of Galilee and that's sort of the area that we normally think of Jesus and the disciples hanging out and working. They were much further north and this passage doesn't say that they were visiting people that they knew or that they were staying in the house of someone that was supporting them. There's no real details of about what they're doing there and apparently this town is very beautiful but it was known for something other than that it was a center of worship for the gods pan and baal and it was also a center of worship for caesar himself philip 
And there, in the middle of this place, surrounded by these temples, surrounded by Greek and Roman culture, by all these places devoted to other gods, by people coming there to worship all these other gods, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter's saying he's not just the anointed Messiah, this one they've been waiting for, but the son of the living God, living and working. Not like those dead gods in the temples, not like the Caesar who was far away and unapproachable. Is Jesus living for you? Do you think of him that way? Who do you say that Jesus is? Especially when you're not in a church context. Jesus took those disciples away from an area that was perhaps safe and protected and into somewhere that was a bit more wild and potentially frightening for them with all these different influences. When you're out of a church culture, when it's safe to say that you know who Jesus is, who do you say Jesus is then? When you're surrounded by people that don't necessarily love God or a place that is full of a culture that's not Christian, who do you say Jesus is then? What you say in church might be one thing, but who you say Jesus is on a Monday morning or a Friday night or a Saturday lunchtime might be something completely different. How is your life different because of who you say Jesus is? What difference does it make to your life? It's all very well agreeing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. But how does that change who you are? How does it impact you? You might know all the right answers, even when the answer is Jesus, even when the answer isn't Jesus. You might know all the right answers. You might be very well versed in a school of Bible facts. But how does it impact you? It's useless. All that knowledge is useless unless it changes who you are. Because who we say Jesus is is not something we do with our words but with our whole lives. Jesus isn't just looking for you to get the right answers to the questions. He's looking for more. And he's not actually just looking for you to do what he says. Christianity is not just about obeying laws. It's about that relationship And a whole new attitude that springs from who we say Jesus is and where we put him in our lives. Who do you say Jesus is? And maybe it's not when you're around other people that are not part of church culture. Maybe for you, it's that 4am anxious thoughts. Who is Jesus to you when you're at your most anxious? And every time this church gives me a topic, it ends up being a really hard lesson for me to learn as well. Um, And this time was no exception. And I guess for the last um, several months, for many of us, life has had its ups and downs, hasn't it? And there's been uncertainty around so many things. The health of people that we love, an uncertain job market, shortages in supermarkets, the cost of electricity and fuel increasing, and added financial uncertainty that that brings. And now anxieties fueled by a lack of fuel. And the more I thought about those anxieties in my own life as well, the more I realised what a disconnect there was between the way that I had been thinking about Jesus and the person that he really is. And that can be when I get frustrated and a bit cross with God, when God doesn't conform to who I think he is, to what I think he should be doing, to the answers that I pray, rather than just praying questions and then letting God work. 
I'm the one holding up that picture of God saying, look at that horse. And I'm completely misled. That's not what the picture of God actually is. And I can point out all the detail in that picture of God. And I can be completely misled. I don't know if anyone else feels a bit like that sometimes. Who I say Jesus is when I'm standing up here or when I'm in my own church might be very different to the life that I have outside, whether that's with other people or when I'm with, on my own or whether it's just me and God. If I haven't quoted um, Krish Kandaya to you before, then I haven't spoken here enough. Um, this little book, Disciples, is excellent. He goes through lots of different passages in Matthew. just want to read a quote from the chapter about this passage, which he calls Disconnected. Sometimes we treat God like the father we always wanted, the best mate we never had, the spouse we never found, the project we need to keep us busy, the puzzle we have to complete. These projections can be fantasies controlled by our own desires, just as the first century Jews saw Jesus as the mutineer they were hoping for. We need to allow God to reveal himself to us as he revealed himself to Peter. There is no disconnection in God. He is the same yesterday, today and forever and never lets us down. How about you? Is there anywhere in your life that doesn't say that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the son of the living God? Anywhere that you are trying to make Jesus into something that he is not, someone that he's not. Anywhere that you need to get him to reconnect as he really is and not just how he is in your head. Anywhere that you need to turn back to the Bible and get to know the Jesus that's in those pages. Where you need to spend time with God praying and getting to know God and what he wants for you. I'm going to pray now. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage and thank you that you revealed yourself to Peter. I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to each one of us now. Would you help us to know who you really are? And through knowing who you really are, may we become who we are really designed to be. I pray that our head knowledge might become heart knowledge and that our lives would be changed because of you. Amen.